0: I was a young guy of faith and I saw 25 children die in 15 minutes. There was a famine in Ethiopia and I, these people were running for their life and I happened to come upon them. It was about 10,000 of them. They just got tired of running because there was a civil war and they just, uh, I had come upon them. I was in a Jeep and they all just because they were so dehydrated and sick and they laid down on this plane and they started to moan. And it was the most amazing experience I ever had as I walked between them. Mothers were giving me their child. Most of them were dead. Mm. And uh, I didn't know what to do. They thought maybe I could save them. Man, I I was just uh, stunned, stunned.
1: Thanks for finding the What Happened Was podcast. I'm Amelia Robinson, and the voice you just heard belongs to Tony Hall. Even from that little snippet, you can tell that he is someone who has lived by his convictions. The Date native, a former congressman and U.S. ambassador, has made an impact around the world and was nominated not once, not twice, but three times for the Nobel Peace Prize. We talk about his work, his hunger strike, football, his little dog, Mother Teresa, yeah he knew her, his dog, his dad Dave Hall, the act that got him hate mail from all around the nation, unity, and his thoughts on the current political climate. The What It Ever Was podcast is a project of date.com brought to you by Cops Next. Let them find solutions for your digital needs. Like and rate this show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google, iHeartRadio, or wherever else you find your favorite shows. Now here's my talk with the fascinating Tony Hall. How you doing this morning?
0: I'm doing good. (laughs) (laughs) I'm doing pretty good. How you doing?
1: You know, living the dream in Dayton, Ohio, every single day in every single way. That's what I tell people anyway.
0: (laughs) You ought to be living large today. Daily News got all the awards. You got a nice award.
1: Yeah. Pretty excited about it. I know our staff is all pumped about it. We're proud to be able to serve the community in this way. So it's always nice to be awarded by your peers and all that good stuff. But yeah. So you've gotten your share of rewards in your lifetime, obviously.
0: Well, I've been fooling people a long time.
1: <laughs> Which ones would you say you're most proud of?
0: Uh. I think to be nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize is nice. I'm proud of that. Yeah, I would think you would be. <laughs> I was nominated by my own members of the Congress, and I was I was nominated also by members of Congress from South Korea, and I was nominated by the Prime Minister of Japan for the, for the Nobel Peace Prize three times, so... Three different groups. I think I'm most proud of that, yes. So you were nominated one time for the race thing, right? I don't know if it was for the reparation thing. Might have been part of it. I think it was for that. I think it was for the fast that I went on, 22 day fast, and the hunger work, maybe three of them together. I think South Korea was work that I had done in North Korea. The Prime Minister of Japan, it was, uh, I think he was touched by the fast that I went on, the 22-day water fast.
1: The food strike you did. Explain to people what that was, and, and what did you learn about yourself by doing that?
0: I did a fast for 22 days, and it was water only. I didn't eat for 22 days, and I did it because I was mad at Congress, because they eliminated the only committee, I was the chairman of it, that had to do with hunger in the Congress, and they said they were going to give the money that they were going to start cutting back in Congress away, back to the people in America, which was a joke, because they basically lied to the American people. They they kept the money and spread it among the other committees. I was so mad. I went home, told my wife, I said, you know, I think I'm going to quit Congress. And I said, you know, this issue I love, they, they just eliminated it. And she said, do you ever think about going on a fast? So we went, prayed and read Isaiah 58. I went on this fast, which was water only. I'll make it real short. Press went nuts. They loved it. But my colleagues, they didn't know what to think. You know, <laughs> nobody's in Congress had ever fasted before. They thought this guy must be a fruitcake. But in the end, they loved it because the New York Times the Washington Post, they started to write good articles about it. <laughs> what happened was, is that the, the World Bank put... $100 million behind the FAST. And they committed it through microcredit and microfinance. They said, if you come and make a speech, we're going to have this large conference. We might back your FAST because we've been reading about it in the New York Times. I said, well, it's going to have to be a good speech. <laughs> so I came, and the Secretary General of the UN was there, Jimmy Carter was there, heads of state were there, and they committed $100 million to my FAST. It all went to women to start your own businesses. All that money has been paid back. What I learned in that 22 days was that the first seven days I was so hungry. I could have eaten my desk. I was hungry. But after seven days, I found out that I was no longer hungry. Your body begins to really fool you. I now began to really see as I began to travel overseas, why do these kids who are starving, have these tubes down their nose, down their throat? I said, you know, they're hungry. Let's just give them. Let's give them some food here. They'll eat. He said, because they, we have to force feed them. Their body has began, and their brain has began to fool them. They don't. They don't feel like they need to eat it. Wow. And so I, be, I began to understand why we have to force feed some people because their their brain lies to them. And I began to identify with that. And then those 22 days were, uh, as far as I was concerned, they were the most spiritual time I ever had. They were just an amazing time of of listening and praying and, and reading the scripture and talking to people. And um, I really learned a lot about going without and being hungry. And I spent a lot of time with hungry people. And I, I learned what it is to be hungry. Except I knew that someday I was going to be able to eat again. Most people in my predicament, they don't know whether they're going to eat again. I knew I was going to eat someday again. So it was an amazing experience. I'll never forget it. It was one of the most interesting, probably the best thing I ever did as far as learning about hunger.
1: Where do you get that moral compass from? And were you always like so religious?
0: No, I was not religious at all. I had to go to the Congress of the United States to find faith. <laughs> I was not religious at all. When I went to the Congress, I I felt that I, you know, had been successful, but I thought I have a wonderful wife, children. And I kept thinking, you know, there's got to be more in life than this than just success and ambition. So I started to look around. And then a lot of things came together and then when I went overseas my first time I was chairman of this subcommittee on hunger it was a subcommittee on foreign affairs it was a subcommittee on hunger overseas it was part of the overall big committee and so they appointed me and so the first place I went was Ethiopia and it was uh, I was a young guy of faith and I saw 25 children die in 15 minutes. There was a famine in Ethiopia. And I, these people were running for their life. And I happened to come upon them. It was about 10,000 of them. They just got tired of running because there was a civil war. And they just, uh, I had come upon them. I was in a Jeep and they all just, because they were so de- dehydrated and sick. And they laid down on this plane and they started to moan. And it was the most amazing experience I ever had as I walked between them. Mothers were giving me their child. Most of them were dead. Mm. And uh, I didn't know what to do. They thought maybe I could save them. Man, I, I was just uh, stunned. Stunned. And then coming home from that trip after three days of seeing death like that, I as I began to read the scripture about, 2,500 verses in the Bible that deal with that issue of hunger, sickness, of widows, orphans, of what God says. You know, what he says to us that I want you to help these people. I thought, well, maybe this is a way I can show a sermon rather than speak a sermon. That started me on my quest. That spoke to my faith. And then my faith, I think, got stronger and stronger. And I went from there.
1: Well, I feel like a lot of people probably wouldn't have been able to come back from an experience like that in the way where you have. It. it probably was a lot of trauma. Carrie, I can imagine that that's like a sorrow that's there still somewhere. So what do you do for fun? Like, what is? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I talk to you. <laughs> well, I got this little dog here at my feet. And he's a little Maltese. He's a lovely dog, and my wife and I we have a good time with each other. And if the pandemic was not on, we'd love to. <laughs> we love to go out to eat. I like to exercise. I read a lot. Oh, I, I bet I read two or three books a week. Wow. And, and <laughs> um, oh, I I like I like history books, but I I love I like fiction. I like action books, fun books, escape books. And I exercise a lot. I walk a lot and exercise. And I'm 78, and I still feel pretty good.
1: That's good. <laughs> <laughs> Are you been doing well with the whole pandemic, staying away from folks and all that? Yeah, yeah.
0: Out? Yeah, I get outside a lot, and we see friends. We wear the mask and stuff like that. Yeah, we watch it.
1: You're the son of Dave Hall, which is Dave Hall's plaza. And Dave Hall was the mayor of Dayton. And you grew up in the Dayton area. Did you ever think you were going to be doing this whole thing? Or what did you want to be when you were a little
0: kid? (laughs) I never wanted to be a politician. I never thought about it. I was never educated in diplomacy or in government from the standpoint of college. I wanted to be a professional football player. (laughs) That was my desire. I loved sports. I have our two older brothers. Sports was really pushed. And loved in my family and so we were all involved in sports my yeah, one brother yeah he's Olympian right he was Olympic champion he was a silver medal winner in the 1960 Olympics in Rome my other brother my middle brother he was a football player and I was a football player uh, I love football I was recruited by Woody Hayes to play football at Ohio State I got hurt there my freshman year and I thought you know I'm a I'm a little bit small for Ohio State, so I, I transferred to a smaller school, Denison University. Did well there, and uh, then I got hurt again. I broke a couple of vertebraes in my back there.
1: Oh, God. And
0: that decided for me that I was not going to play professional football. I was too small, and I got beat up pretty good, but... um my ambition was to be a professional football player. And I never thought I would get into politics. Never, never really liked politics that much. Never studied it. And, but my dad was in it. He seemed to like it. I watched him, helped him in his campaign, but uh, never thought I would get into it. And then I went into the United States Peace Corps. You know, I think that changed my opinion about some things. I went to Thailand and I became a teacher. I taught in a vocational high school. It was a high school, upcountry. I was upcountry from Bangkok, and I was close to the, at that time, it was was Burma. I was very close to the Burma border, and, and I taught kids that couldn't get into regular high schools. They were really poor kids. Their parents didn't have money, and as a result of that, they were sent to a vocational high school, and all their manuals were in... British English, not in American English, and they couldn't really read them. So I had to really start a whole new English program for them, rewrite their manuals and and teach them English. And it was a lot of fun. I, I really enjoyed it. It started to teach me a lot about living with poor people, eating with poor people, listening to them, seeing how they lived, because I didn't grow up poor. I didn't know anything about poor poverty It taught me about what it is to be an American overseas and and really live in poverty. I think I made $70 a month. I lived in a a room that had, it was open. It was completely open. I had a mosquito net, took my showers out of a bucket. Wow. And um, I lost 60 pounds my first year that I was over there and spoke a different language, learned to speak Thai. I still speak Thai today. It's really interesting. It's funny, I I was young then, and so I was 20, 21 years old. It's interesting, when you learn a language when you're young, you retain it. And, you know, that was 50 years ago. I can still speak the Thai language. It's kind of interesting. How good are you with it? When I go to Thai restaurants, I speak Thai, and they say, you know, your language is very clear. The Thai language is, is tonal. There's five tones. There's a middle tone, a falling tone, a rising tone a high tone and a low tone. So I can take one word like ma, and I can say ma, ma, and I just said three different words, but it took me, it took me a year to get it right. So I can say, I know which means that uh, I'm going to go to the market and I'm going to buy some things and I'll be back. When I went over there, I learned Thai and I took 300 hours of it before I went over there in our Peace Corps training. And the problem with it was my sentence structure and my vocabulary was excellent, but nobody understood me because I couldn't get my tones right. It took me a year to learn the tones. Wow. Yeah. It's a very difficult language.
1: Well, yeah, because our words are like a sauce is a sauce, no matter how you
0: say it, right? You can say it differently in in the South or in the West or in the East, but you still understand. But if you don't say it right in in Thai, they... People will not understand you. Well, I would say, please pass the rice. And I would be saying, please pass the mountain. And everybody started laughing, <laughs> giggling. <and laughs> that's why I was losing all this weight. I can never, they can never understand me. <laughs> I
1: could never order any food. You're just eating a mountain yeah. all the time.
0: <laughs> so that's when you first thought
1: about poverty. What did you think about poverty before that
0: point? You know, I was never around it. It didn't come into my environment. And um, what I knew about poverty before that time, I knew through sports and through athletics. And I knew through the guys that I played with and the guys that I brought home to my house. I learned a little bit about poverty and through their lives and how they lived. And when I would go to their house and pick them up and talk to them and be with them. But I didn't know a lot about it. Who were your parents like as people? They were good people. they were really, very supportive of us when we were young, especially in sports. I mean, if we were playing tetherball or soccer or football, they were always at our games and always extremely supportive. They were fun. My dad was tough. he was tough on us. He would ta- <laughs> He would take me into the principal at the start of every school. This is unheard of today. He would take me into the principal he says. This is my son, and my, I can remember him doing the fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. He says, "Vax up." This would be the first day of school. Vax up, you beat him, and okay. then you call me because when he gets home, I'm going to beat him. Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> oh, <So, laughs> that's the way we were kind of brought up. He was pretty—he's a pretty tough guy.
1: Was he surprised that you kind of went into politics after all?
0: He was surprised. He didn't want me to do it. I have a daughter in Dayton and she's lovely and bright and she wants to go into politics and I keep trying to tell her, no, don't do it. So, <laughs> so my dad was the same way. Don't do it. I don't want you to get hurt. <laughs> it's just mainly because you know how hard it is that you don't want her to do it's it. It's hard. It's hard. It's wonderful. It's gratifying. I loved it. I'm so glad I did it. You can do a lot of good, but it's tough. It's tough.
1: Yeah, we were talking about that a little bit when we met up in Dayton not too long ago about the whole backlash you got over some of the racial stuff you tried to push through. Yeah. Um, is that the kind of thing you're talking about?
0: Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, we were talking about, you know, when I introduced the uh, the resolution to apologize for slavery. And gee, this was late 1990s. It must have been 1998 or something like that. I can't remember the, the year. But I thought it would a, be a simple resolution. I said, you know, we ought to start apologizing for things that we did. You know, slaves actually built the capital of the United States. Ah! That's my—that's my dog. <laughs> Hold on a sec. This is this is Bella. <laughs> anyway, anyways. You know, we didn't even count slaves as people. I mean, we count them as what three fourths of a person or three fifths or something. And I went through all of this, so I introduced this resolution: is the, the Congress of the United States should apologize for it. Hold on a second. Let me let me dog out because she's she's looking at a squirrel and she's right. Yeah. There jump. Hold on.
1: Yeah, I got two cats. Same re- thing. The reason
0: they're not in the room
1: because they are maniacs.
0: She either saw a cat or a squirrel. I'm not sure which. <laughs> She's going to get
1: it, whatever it is. Breaking in to remind you that the What Had Happened Was podcast is brought to you by Dayton Daily News. As our community and nation respond to the coronavirus threat, the Dayton Daily News is here, providing up-to-the-minute local coverage on our website and app and going in-depth so you know what's really going on. Our news team is working around the clock to provide information you can trust, to keep your family safe and connected. As a community... We may be hunkered down in our homes, but we are still Dayton strong. We have survived so much together and will get through this crisis too. The Dayton Daily News, your trusted source for local news. Back to my talk with Tony Hall.
0: So I had this, this resolution that the Congress of the United States, we should apologize for slavery. I thought, this is simple. Why shouldn't we do this? Oh my gosh, I got killed. I mean, I got so many threats from people. So many hate letters. In those days, you didn't get emails. They you know, were just, start. just starting. But I got phone calls and emails. And I got some of the most wonderful letters and thank you from people all over the country and all over the world. But I also got so much hate mail that I had to have protection because my life was threatened. I thought, whoa, man, we really do have a racial problem here. I thought maybe we were getting over this. And I thought, let's start with an apology. And then, you know, we can talk about reparations later. But if we can't even get through an apology, we got a problem. Are you hopeful, though, with
1: the kind of discussion the country seems to be having now, that things are getting better?
0: I am. Because so many people are really starting programs, they're talking, they're thinking about it, they're they're listening, they're, uh, I think they're really listening. I, I think pe- things are happening and I'm hopeful. In America,
1: we most people are supposed to have a roof over their head. I know there's a lot of people who don't have the same types of roofs over their head. There's a lot of ranges in America, but generally have a roof over their head. What do we not know about poverty in this country
0: if we were living in normal times which we're not because of the pandemic but if we were living in normal times when we drive downtown we don't we don't interact with people we we interact with the people that we work with if we live in the suburbs we stay in the suburbs and if we're not in another environment if if we don't go out of our way to meet other people if we don't go out of our way to listen if we don't go out of our way to be involved, we're not gonna know. I mean, it's like when I used to speak to some of the congressmen, I could not understand some of the congressmen that I knew that like this one congressman that I knew pretty well, he represented one of the most wealthy districts in Florida. Everybody in his district was white and they lived in in houses $200,000 and up, and he didn't have minorities. And I was trying to understand why he always voted in in such a conservative way. And he never voted for minorities. He never voted for poor programs until I went to his district and saw his district. Well, this is the way he was brought up. This was his environment. So if you don't go out of your way to find out what's going on in your community, if you don't go out of your way to listen, if you don't go out of your way to make friends, if you don't go out of your way to look around you, you're gonna be blind and you're not going to understand it you're not if you don't go out of your way to listen and to interact and to get involved in other things
1: a lot of people do want to get involved and they just don't know how to do it or what how to start in a meaningful way that actually can change their perspective other than like you know people can go I can go volunteer at the soup kitchen but how much do you actually gain after one shift of volunteering at the soup kitchen you know what I mean how do you actually dive in there
0: and do it one way i know that that works. Uh, that's helpful. Is a lot of churches adopt churches. They have programs with each other, and they have dinners, or lunches, or picnics, or athletic events. A white church adopts a black church. I see that a lot in in Washington D.C., where a suburb church will adopt a church in the inner city of Washington, and uh, they really get to know each other and help each other with uh, with uh, various problems. I, that is just one way. It's a way in which they can come together. They pray together. They eat together. They listen to one another. They, they do programs with each other. They help each other. Their children uh, get to know each other, and they um, they visit each other. They become friends. That's one way. Uh, I It works. That one works, I know.
1: Yeah, we actually had a relationship with a church when I was growing up that was from this like rural area or suburbs or something. I don't remember where. But it was that same kind of thing where you actually got to know the other congregants from the other church. And it was a meaningful sort of relationship other than just like a one and done kind of pop in. And it was beneficial from both points of view, I think. You know, my
0: best friend in Congress, even to this day, he's uh, no longer a congressman. He's like me. He's re- He's uh, retired. His name is Congressman Frank Wolf. He's a conservative Republican. And he and I, we became friends over 35 years ago. And we would pray together every Tuesday. There's a little chapel in the Capitol, and it's, it's only open to members of Congress uh, and senators. And uh, it's, it's a real small chapel. It's, oh, I would say it's a size of maybe 20 by 20. And you go in there and it's got Bibles and, uh, you know, it's real small. Anyway, you go in there, it's real quiet. Nobody else is allowed in there. And we would go in there at four o'clock every Tuesday, read the scripture, talk, pray, talk about our families, talk, you know, we'd be very vulnerable with one another. And we got to know each other and we began to travel. Our wives got to know each other. We we shared and we went all over different places and, and we became very good friends to this day. After a while, we, we wouldn't talk about issues, because if we began to talk about issues, he was extremely conservative. I'm, I'm a Democrat, and, and there was a lot of issues that would separate us. So we decided if we talked about issues, especially right away, we would be separated, and we couldn't get along. So we decided we would just read the scripture, and we would just pray, and, and we would just get along and talk and have food. and. We'd take trips together and, you know, when you have breakfast, lunch and dinner and travel overseas and we would go to third world nations and we began to trust each other and we began to work on issues like poverty, hunger, trafficking in in children and women and religious persecution and stuff like that. And we have passed a lot of legislation together and we have become just great friends. He has been a real pal and a real friend and. So the issues that separate us, we don't even talk about them. I mean, we laugh at them, and we laugh at other politicians. And he and I used to sit in the back of the chamber when uh, the political fights would go on. And sometimes we'd have to go against our own party, and we'd pray for one another as, as they would go down and have to speak in the well of the House of Representatives because we know that they would have to go and speak against something that would generally not be accepted. There's not enough of that in political life.
1: Is it still possible for folks to have those sort of relationships with how toxic things are, do you think?
0: It is, it is, and it still goes on in a small way. I could point to maybe 40 or 50 men and women in the House and the Senate to this day that do that, that Republicans and Democrats that get together and pray together very quietly, They don't tell the press. They don't get together with their staff, but they get together. They very quietly get together and get to know each other, become vulnerable with each other. And and when they do that, after a while, they begin to trust. And they accomplish a lot together. It works. But most people in the country don't know about it. It absolutely works.
1: Are you worried as somebody who used to be in that role uh, about... The future of the country, like in the House and the Senate, everybody is so like competitive all the time. Everybody's so like, "Mm, are you worried about the future of
0: our nation? Very worried. I've never seen our country like this before. I don't think, matter of fact, I know our, our country has never faced anything like this before. Hurricanes, tornadoes, killings, shootings, pandemics, divisions like we've never had in politics before. I've never seen anything like this before. I'm very worried. That's why this election is so important. It's so important. This election really is about decency. It should be. It's about values. It's about character. And I, I've never seen an election like this, ever. I've been in 17 elections. I've never seen an election like this before, ever.
1: I was actually having a conversation with somebody the other day about this, like in historical context, like how bad are we really? Because obviously we've had like two civil wars. You know, if you want to count the Revolutionary War as a civil war, because at the time it was a civil war <laughs> before, you know, they uh, broke from England. Do you think we're in a civil war as far as like an ideological civil war? that make sense? It might not even make sense.
0: Yeah, I think, well, for example, you take the issue that I care about, hunger. We have more hunger today than we had during the Depression, even during World War II. We have more problems with hunger today than we've ever had, partly because of the pandemic. Yes, that's really exasperated it. I've never seen a time where we've had a debate like we had the other day. The other, I, I have never seen a presidential debate ever like that, even though... I am a supporter of Joe Biden. I was hoping one of them would say, you know, President Trump kept saying the left and the right and this and that and Democrats and Republicans. I was hoping one of them would say, wait a minute, let's quit talking about Democrats and Republicans. Let's quit talking about the left and the right. The president of the United States represents all of these people. This is why you run for office. You represent the whole country. You represent everybody, poor, rich, black, white, Republicans, Democrats, refugees. This is why you run for office. Quit talking about divisions. And I've never seen a debate like that. No, I think I have never seen our country like this. I, we, I, I, th- I really think we need a spiritual awakening. I really do. I I think I really do. I think we need a spiritual awakening. I I don't want to get religious but at the same time, you know, that's second chronicles seven fourteen where where God talks about it's time to humble ourselves. I'm kind of paraphrasing, I'm not exactly quoting it correctly, but it's time that maybe we all humble ourselves because we're not doing the things that we ought to be doing. I mean, if you if you put all this stuff together, the pandemic the hurricanes, the tsunamis, the shootings, the killings, the divisions, the racial problems—everything. I mean, it's it's almost too much.
1: You talked about hunger a couple of times. How is it now that we're in a pandemic compared to it? How it was before we entered this stage—is it a lot worse or is it about the same? I don't know. I'm sure it's not the same, but how? how do we well,
0: talk? It's worse. I will say this. Before we entered the pandemic, and, and this is a bit of good news, we had cut poverty and hunger in half in the world. That is really good news. because So all the things that we have been doing in the world, clean water, sanitation, school feeding, microcredit, teaching mothers how to read and write, especially in third world nations, poverty rate was cut in half and so was hunger. Now the pandemic stopped it all. And it, now it's the way it is now. It's, it's doubled. It's doubled. We were doing very, very good. Positive news was that, yes, all these things that we were asking for and doing in the Congress of the United States was, was absolutely helping not only our country, but countries overseas. And they were and these programs were absolutely working.
1: How'd you characterize it right now in America, the poverty?
0: Poverty has doubled because of the pandemic. And your paper, the Dayton Daily News, you ran that a most amazing article saying that thirty percent, almost thirty percent of the people in Dayton live in poverty. <clears throat> and putting Dayton in, in, you know, one of the top cities in the country of people living in poverty. We got a problem.
1: I think that truly started a lot of people, that it was so bad here. A lot of people were just, you know, talking about that on social media and just talking about it, and that is something that cannot be ignored. It's not right, (laughs) you know? We just also did some stories about the racial divide and how the opportunity gap is so huge in in the Dayton area. What is it going to take for a place like Dayton to sort of overcome some of these challenges, would you say?
0: Well, we're doing a couple of things. One, we have probably the largest food desert east of the Mississippi. One of the things that Dayton is doing very well, the Jim City Market, which is is being built as as you and I are talking here, is is uh, is going up, and it's going to be opening real soon on Salem Avenue. We were hoping that it would be up by Thanksgiving. That was before the pandemic pandemic, but it's probably going to be opening, I would say, the first of January. It's going to serve fresh fruits and vegetables, and it's going to be put right in the middle of the food desert. It's going to serve the people that need it most, and the people people there have had to go downtown on a bus and then take a bus to the suburbs, and as you know, when senior citizens have to do that, or, or women with children, that takes a couple hours. I mean, that. You talk about difficult and frustrating. I mean, how many groceries can you carry? That's been kind of a miracle in a way, in that we have raised practically all the money.
1: They're like four to, million dollars or something too, right?
0: Well, if we originally it was four point two million dollars and we have raised well over four point two million dollars. We we still have some other bills that are coming in and got behind on a few things, but we are way ahead of $4.2 million and really doing well. People in Dayton have really responded well. It's gonna be a, a co-op. It's gonna be owned by the people in the area. It's gonna be worked by the people in the area. It's gonna be wonderful. So that's one thing. Secondly, people have really responded to to this whole area. Homeful has a 42 foot mobile grocery store that should start this month and they're gonna make 14 stops And it's been paid for by the three hospitals who who really recognize the importance of getting healthy food to people. We're gonna have Miami Valley Meals, which is really chefs that are really out of work as a result of the pandemic. And they are preparing meals, 2,000 meals this week, 3,000 meals next week. And these are good meals, nutritious meals. The other thing is, is that we need to raise the minimum wage. You know, so many of our people in Dayton, they're not making a workable living wage. That's gotta come from our government officials. The other thing is, hopefully with a new election, we can start to really have some building of our infrastructure, the repairing of our roads, uh, the repairing of our pipes, the repairing of our streets, our bridges, our houses ought to be weatherized. And we need to hire people to do that. There's so many things that we can do that would, that would hire people and also with the living wage. So there's a lot of things that we can do that we're not doing. And the other thing is, I think Nan Whaley said this in one of your articles in the Dayton Daily News is that, you know, we don't have internet in so many of our areas that are extremely poor. So people, you know, they don't have the ability to get the internet and read about the availability of jobs, and yeah. why aren't our libraries open to do that? Then you don't have access to some of our libraries. So there's a lot of things that we can do that we're not doing.
1: I tell you that the tornado in particular really shine a light on that for a lot of folks. See the numbers this from the food bank or whatever, from the different agencies who keep track of this, that poverty is really bad, right? But until you see it in person, how many people who are in need, we had a couple of Dayton Daily News food give outs, partnerships with the food bank. And the amount of people who came was just mind blowing. Some of them were affected directly by the tornadoes, but a lot, of, a lot of them just in need anyway. I knew it because I've done stories about it, but to actually see it is a very different thing. It kind of gets back to what you said where you have to go try to find the truth out there yourself, you know, get involved.
0: Well, and you don't get to pay half your rent or half your utility bill. When that happens, something has to give. And normally what gives is your food. So they cut back on your food, end up going to, you know, the cheap food, the McDonald's food and, and stuff like that, which is not good for you if you keep eating it.
1: Okay, so the name of the show is What Had Happened Was. So I asked people to go, what had happened was, and then finish the sentence however they want.
0: What had happened was, is that I've really enjoyed this conversation. And there's so much more I would like to tell you about, especially about hunger and my time in Congress, but especially about my time as a U.S. ambassador. I really had some amazing experiences in Rome and and some of the third world nations, especially Africa and some of the people that I met. Mother Teresa is my favorite person. I met her seven or eight times. She was wonderful. I have some great stories about her. It's wonderful to be on your program. What's your favorite Mother Teresa story since you brought her up? The first thing I remember about her, the first time I met her, she grabbed my hand. She, and she grabbed this hand. She, this is before she said, hello, what's your name? She took each finger and she said, always remember, and this is to me, for the least of these. It's right out of Matthew 25. That's the way she greeted me. She didn't say, how are you? Drop dead. (laughs) What's going on? What's your name? She comes up to me, grabs my hand, takes each finger. Always remember, for the least of these. Is that something she did for everybody or just for you? Just for me.
1: Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's really cool.
0: Yeah. I don't know why she did that to me. I was with five other people.
1: I feel like you remembered that and actually tried to live up to it. So that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, thanks a lot for coming. on. I know you're very busy with all the different initiatives and stuff you're doing and with the doggy and so
0: forth. (laughs) Good to be with you. And congratulations again. That is a wonderful honor you got. Just wonderful. And to have the number one newspaper in Ohio, that's pretty darn good.
1: Yeah, it is good. We're going to just keep getting better from here, I think. Hate to say I told you so, but I told you Tony Hall was fascinating. If you haven't already, consider getting a membership to the Gym City Market for yourself or someone else. Details can be found on their website, GymCityMarket.com. The What It Happened Was podcast is written, edited, and produced by me, Amelia Robinson. The show's artwork is by my good friend, Troy Lyman of TL Creates of Columbus. Until next time, be good to each
0: other, and stay at least six feet apart. Bye-bye.